everybody. Welcome to Amateur All Tours. I'm your host, Mike, and this week I have Jay Skipworth back to uh, continue our journey through the decades. Jay, how you been doing, man? Man, I've been doing good, just busy, but uh, glad to get back into these and uh, starting to get into stuff that's closer to when I was alive. Uh, neither of the films we're talking about on in this recording and in the next couple episodes I was actually on the earth for, but uh, after after this week, I won't be able to say that anymore after these two episodes, but uh, glad to be back and uh, taking this journey through the decades and uh, yeah, got a, got a couple different things here for the 60s and 70s. Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm very interested because yeah, like you said, these are the the films that I am now more familiar with. Um, still haven't seen some of them, but uh, it'll be a very interesting um, journey nonetheless. And I'm actually, it's, I'm actually these next, uh, the, the 60s and 70s in particular, I'm very interested to see because I feel like a lot of the films that you've been uh, that you've been choosing have almost been like perfect lead-ins to everything. I don't know if you did that deliberately or if it was just like, oh, I haven't seen that movie or, or this movie or if it's like these these were very deliberate picks. And that I think that'll be, we'll talk about that more with the 1970s pick. But uh, yeah, so this week we have The Apartment from 1960 uh, for Billy w uh, Wilder. So yeah, we, we've talked about him before and mm -hmm. I'm curious. So The Apartment, what made you want to choose this one out of everything in the 60s? Well, I had actually never seen the movie, but back in the big throes of the pandemic, I think I've mentioned before that I got involved with an online group of like community theater players who would do sort of Zoom readings of things, but they would also work in just random movie script readings. Mm -hmm. And someone wanted to do The Apartment because they had seen it done as a play before and they thought it was funny they loved the era of of the comedies and so i read one of the parts having really no connection to it so i got to read the thing before i ever saw it and i thought well i didn't, I didn't know this was like a thing and so i went and looked it up afterward and i was like jack lemon redmond murray shirley mclean holy cow how have i not seen this and so watched it and just really really fell in love with it and i was like okay this will be the perfect because it was a first time watch for me um to to uh to get through it so this was a good one to kind of to, to veer off of the we've done a lot of noir and that kind of thing and i know we're going to come back to that some but i wanted to to do something a little different because i i have this thing that about rom-coms that is not a unique or a wholly unique theory with me mike but i think the the underappreciated part of a romantic comedy is just how like dark and subversive and socially contemporary or, or social commentary that they are for the times that they're made in and this one in particular hits a lot of those bones and it still plays today so i i thought this will be fun to get into uh, because i was really struck by it having just you know again not watched it again in my lifetime until just you know recent yeah and this was I, this was one of the films i wasn't uh familiar with in the past and yeah but but i had heard about it and i was uh interested when we got into it and i and i will say watching it again they don't th this was particularly a movie that i'm like man i don't know if they could make this today um especially with some of the the things that they talk about and really like they push maybe for today's standards they really like they they really toe that line of like man i can't believe that this is what we're talking about and making jokes about and just i guess is acceptable which is interesting of the 1960s and of its time so mm -hmm. so jay what is the apartment about because i also didn't know what like i'd heard about it but didn't really know the the uh, actual plot of the movie so when they get into it i was like oh wow this like 
this feels kind of scandalous that this is what we're talking about in the 1960s. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really simple, actually. It's it's a an insurance clerk, played by Jack Lemmon, who's trying to climb the corporate ladder. So obviously, he's going to do whatever his bosses want him to do, right? Which is the whole above and beyond, which I think is an interesting thing to talk about here in 2022. And, you know, the quiet quitting and all that kind of stuff is is of discussion out in the world of work and all that stuff. So he's he's going to you know do whatever he wants. And he lets his senior co-workers use his Upper West Side apartment for their extramarital affairs. Now you say this isn't something that could be made contemporarily. It actually has been made again contemporarily. It was done more as a thriller with like Carl Urban and several other people several years ago. I can't remember the name of that one, but I'll have to look it up uh, here while we're chatting. But I've seen this sort of premise, but this is all played for laughs. So the thing is back in these days, and this is going to seem so foreign to so many people, but I actually remember seeing a few of these in the town I grew up in. There used to be people that operated the elevator for you when you worked in an office building. You didn't push the buttons. Somebody came in and they operated the levers and all that stuff for you. And it was just kind of like a doorman type of service. It was really considered like a luxury thing if you had a, a, a an elevator operator. Well, the elevator operator is played by Shirley MacLaine, who, if you only know Shirley MacLaine for like her latter days and stuff, you just think of this older lady. When she was a, a starlet, man, she was a dish, all right? Like she was this gorgeous redhead woman. Like you know, she was this exotic beauty and had this real sense about her. So she plays the romantic lead. She's the elevator operator that Jack Lemon is infatuated with and he really wants to, you know, get to know her. But <laughs> unbeknownst to him, she's having an affair with his immediate boss and hilarity ensues. And that's pretty much what the movie's about. And all the twists and turns that go through that. Ultimately, he, you know, he saves her from a suicide attempt. This is where the thing gets really dark. Yeah. And, and, you know, she blows off the boss. He doesn't know about it. He quits the firm and, you know, protests. She thinks he's killed himself, but he's just popping a bottle of champagne and they kind of laugh and play cards together. And I mean, that there's a lot more that goes on, but that's the movie. And again, it's weird to see Fred McMurray in a role where, again, I only know him as like, you know, the dad right or the the bumbling professor or something like that you know this this sweet man where you know he, he played a, a a crooked insurance uh executive before and now he's playing a a philandering hr boss uh, which is also a horrible stereotype but hollywood continues to perpetuate it yeah it's and this entire time i mean yeah jack lemon he's he's you, you just can't help but not like him he brings so much like Oh, personality well. to this role that like for someone that like needs for me the whole time I was watching I'm like dude this guy needs to grow a spine like if you're letting you can't even sleep in your own apartment like you you know people are coming into your uh they're calling you when you're trying to go to bed like hey you know I'll put in a good word but I have this girl that looks like Marilyn Monroe or whatever the joke was and he steps out and they stay the whole night and he gets a cold and I was like dude you gotta grow a spine or something like you know you this is <laughs> as blackmail like that like you know that that thriller premise you know that you were talking about earlier mm -hmm. um but this is when i was talking about man like what a time for these movies because then you know they're just casually talking about um about these affairs that they're having and just like dismissing this guy and just like oh well you you get it like you know like we're men we have to do this and it's i was like man like just just watching this from a 2022 perspective of just like <laughs> Man, this is, and maybe it's just my age and like the kind of the culture that uh, that I'm that I grew up in. I was like, man, this is like I, I don't like any of these people that oh. any of these bosses like they deserve to get 
nothing in return here. Yeah, oh, Mike, this is toxic masculinity in a, in a movie. I mean, it really is. Like, it's everything that that is about. Like, it is the worst stereotypes of the the male executive. Like, everything you think of that they, they parodied in some ways, and they also really played for drama on Mad Men, is on display here. It's all of that stuff. It's, it's all of that again. And um, the fact that they play it off for laughs, because that's, that's my premise here and, and really why I'm interested in this movie, is because it is such heavy subject matter, because you're talking about extramarital affairs, you're talking about men who abuse women and use them in different ways just for their own, and then also men who feel, feel like they need to let this sort of awful stuff go on so that they can advance their own careers, but then it violates their own conscience versus what it's doing to the female characters, particularly uh, Shirley McLean's character, Fran, in this. I mean, she tries to kill herself. You know, the the young executive, at one point, Jack Lemmon talks about killing himself. Like, that's, I'm not trying to laugh through that. Like, it's very serious. The fact that they jam that in a rom-com, that's insane. Like when you think about it, but, but it's not new again, I, I go back to, you know, even, even more contemporary and it's not contemporary anymore. Cause it's 30 years old, but like pretty woman is a dark ass movie. If you watch it, like it could be a freaking horror movie. If you wanted it to be like, you could do one of those recut trailers for it to that. And this movie is no exception, but I think because it is comedy and Shakespeare's the one that I think really pioneered this just in terms of a format is you can use laughter as a way to tell stories that are uncomfortable. And to talk about things that are uncomfortable and let's put it out there and let's really get into it. And, and you know, thinking about the times here, man, the late 1950s into the 60s, this is before women in the workplace was a thing that got any kind of respect. It would be another 30 years before that even existed, right? And so we're coming out of the the post-war 50s. We're in an economic boom. It's, you know, and, and it's a man's world. It really is. And you see what that looks like in a, a reality setting and this isn't based on a true story but goodness gracious how you you can totally relate to it right and let's think about all the stories we've heard of these awful executives and the way that they you know uh, deal with people i mean harvey weinstein just just to keep it in the entertainment world for goodness sakes and he's not the only casting couch you know person but really all of it it, it comes to play and I, I think it's it's pretty amazing that again they get they get this put together um in such a way that it it allows for all of those deep dark subjects to happen but we also get a lot of laughter as well because i think so much of that hinges on these performances too yeah yeah exactly and like you're saying you know man's world yeah you're you know the the executives are slapping asses on the way out they're just mm -hmm. you know they're just talking about women like they're objects and uh it it is a very it, it's it's an interesting time but i think it's a it's a very smart script and i think uh, with Billy Wadler at the at the helm of directing, even just like the visuals that we're seeing, um, it's 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 a really engaging film. And I think, yeah, obviously the the performances are are very strong. That I am able to keep going with this, um, especially as Jack Lemmon as as uh, Bud Baxter. I, yeah. I think he he just brings, like I said earlier, he just brings so much charisma and personality to this that I just I just keep rooting for him when whether it's he's trying to climb the uh, the corporate ladder or when he starts um, starts asking Fran out on a date uh, or even just like interacting with her and 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 the two of them have great chemistry too. Like I, I always remember the scene when they're when they're they're interacting and they talk and she says, you know, you're the only one that takes his hat off in the elevator. Like and mm -hmm. I and I noticed that and that and those are I think those key elements of, of their relationship of just, you know, they, they notice the details about each other. Um, especially in mm -hmm. this, in this, uh, this world, in this film that is completely dominated by, 
these, to- like you said, toxic masculinity uh, personalities. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's also borrowing from another film that came out in 1960. It's, it's a contemporary, so I don't know if they stole it from it, but like Jerry Lewis had a famous movie called The Bellboy. And if you've never seen that, I definitely recommend it because the funny thing is he doesn't talk the whole movie. He's played several roles, so he does have lines, but as the bellboy, he doesn't really ever talk until the very end. But his whole character is just all the people he gets to encounter and see as the person who's the doorman, as the elevator and and the operator and all that stuff. And Fran's the same way here. She is, in a lot of ways, you'd think the the Jack Lemmon character uh, Bud is the the audience, but really he's not. He's the protagonist, but Fran is the audience, you know, and it's through her lens that we get to experience a lot of this movie. And it's a different way of looking at it because in 1960, I think Billy Wilder was, was smart to do it this way. And the way that he and his, his co-writer, uh, I.L. Diamond, uh, put it together was to make her the 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 framing device and the lens to which we experience all of these things because that would not be something that you would have done in 1960 nowadays it's it i mean it's commonplace as it should be but i think it's neat that they frame it through how she experiences all of these things and it's almost as if fran is always the fly on the wall even in places where she's not right because we're sort of experiencing what you know uh bud's going through and and what his boss is like from what she also goes through because we don't really see shell drake and her together that much we don't see all these other people that she interacts with we just hear about it or we see the aftermath of it but we see the way that these men interact with each other particularly the way that that mcmurray's character sheldrake reacts with baxter and you you realize like this is how he smooth talks everyone right this is how he gets himself over with people and you see how he, he can kind of take over a conversation and how he could have become a powerful person because of his gift of persuasion yeah exactly and um and, and i do want to talk about you know a little bit like the suicide and kind of like kind of the relationship of his whole thing so when you well i guess with the i want to say the first time when you read the script um did you expect uh the kind of the way that this movie was going because when i was watching this or, or the story i should say when i was watching this i was kind of like okay wh- where's the end like what's happening like where are mm-hmm. like where are we gonna go with this and um i didn't see that uh that bud uh, that baxter's uh crush fran was going to be involved with you know the head executive but when we get to that point i love the just the nuance of the script of like the details like i'm a big details man i love like the mm-hmm. mirror reveal um I, I th- that in particular, but also just like the the details of their acting, like at this huge Christmas party, which I gotta say, like that is a rager of a Christmas party, right? I mean, I, like, isn't that the trope for every Christmas party joke we've heard though the last like 20, 40, 50 years in movies, right? I like, say, yeah, I was like, damn, like these people are going hard. I'm like, I, I, I mean, you know, yeah. Brian was in for a fraternity, and uh, I'd say a pretty, a pretty large fraternity, and I went to a few parties. I'm like, nothing, nothing <laughs> compared to this. I was like, whoa, like I need to go to a Christmas party like that, right? Um, yeah, like, I, I've never been to one that, like, I've never done the office Christmas party that like got absolutely out of hand like that. Like, I, yeah, I've, <laughs> I've never had to do that. Thank goodness, I don't think that would really go for me. That's not really my style, but I, I do think it's interesting that we get to experience that here. And that, that again has become something that you and I are joking about. It's like, it's trope, right? It's from every college movie that we've ever seen made, right? Or, you know, something like that. It's every animal house type movie, but in 1960, this is where we established that stuff. And so it's kind of neat. Again, that's been part of the fun of this series for me, Mike, is seeing where so many cinematic tropes are established along the way. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, that, that, that broken mirror, I, I love just the reveal. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, here's the mirror, uh, gives it back. He sees it. It's that, that, that kind of that broke. It was broken, right? Like in the, oh, yeah. cause she threw it at him, right? So. Yeah, because she threw it at him. So what, what you get, I mean, like it's all the symbolism of that, right? Is yep. that it's a, it's a broken perspective. You have a broken view of your world and you need to like confront it and realize it. And it takes her being emotional and, and, throwing it at him really for him to start paying attention to it yeah and uh and i was gonna say and then you know afterwards he goes to the like there's that those two simultaneous scenes of um baxter's at the bar drinking which i love the visual of the olives um just Mm -hmm. he's putting them in a circle just you can and visually you can tell he's been sitting there drinking for a while and then kind of back and forth or not back and forth but uh before like that's at the same time the conversation uh, at his apartment when when Fran tries to kill herself and then right. you know Baxter comes back and he tries and you know with like some some bimbo that he met at the bar who you know whose husband's a Cuban refugee locked in Cuba or something like that mm-hmm. and uh and then he comes and he just sees her laying in the bed after he already's aware like hey you got to get out of here like I don't want you here and then she's like not breathing or she's passed out and calls the doctor over this big ordeal. And, uh, I, I do have to say that is not how you, uh, how you treat an overdose. You don't just as, slap them yeah, and give them water. Yeah. <laughs> as, as the, the medical expert here, I was going to ask you about that. Like that's, that's probably not correct. Right. I was, I was hoping you would shed some no, light on how do we do not someone who has an opioid overdose, do not slap them and give them water. And like, it, this isn't like that scene in airplane where it's like, get a hold of yourself. No, do not, <laughs> do not just wind up and slap them as hard as you can. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, call, call someone with uh, Narcan or something call and, and pump their – which they did. They they ended up, you know, essentially uh, pumping her stomach, I guess, just in the old-fashioned way. She had to pull the trigger, stick your finger down your throat. But uh, mm-hmm. but I was just like – and then she was she was a lot calmer after having going through and over – and that's the other thing where I was shocked at just how they, like, really – used like suicide as a joke and just mm-hmm. like really kind of brushing off that she tried killing herself in this dude's apartment and i think that that is also something really uh uh-huh. interesting that like she didn't know that this was baxter's apartment and she's like you know mm-hmm. what like screw like it doesn't matter screw everyone i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go to sleep here and um right? which is which is nuts like yeah, to think they, about they right blew that off like she just tried killing her. she just tried offing herself in some random dude's apartment for him for his problem um and then and i and i i definitely think that tarantino took something from this with uh with pulp fiction, with, oh, with pulp fiction. Yes. like there's definitely like i think that is played like the dark com like pulp fiction is definitely played when Mia Wallace almost overdoses, like that com that dark comedy is like to the next level. But he definitely had to take moments from here. Be like, what worked in this scene? Uh, maybe we won't slap her. We'll just shove a needle in her in her chest. Well, he, 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 con- he made it contemporary, right? Yep, like exactly. That's, that's the whole thing. I mean, like Tarantino is is a is an old Hollywood guy like that's his thing right he loves all these he really likes a lot of old b movies and stuff but he likes this kind of thing and billy wilder and his sensibilities would fall right into tarantino's kind of twisted sense of of uh humor and so yeah i'm glad you called that out because i I was sitting there thinking the same thing i'm like all i need is eric stoltz with a needle going (laughs) just stab her just straight down it's like i mean yeah 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 so and even like the conversation leading up to her uh 
trying to offer self was, you know, why do men run around with girls? Like that whole monologue. And like, right. I was just like, yeesh, like I feel for you, girl. It's dark, and then, right? And then yeah. even at the end, it's just like, oh, here's a hundred bucks. Go buy yourself something nice. Merry Christmas. And it's like, man, she, I don't, I don't think she says it, but it's just like, she must, fe- she, she essentially says like, I'm just a whore. Like, I'm yeah, just that's, like, yeah, I, that's what she feels like because she's treated like one. That's the like, thing. I'm just a working girl. Like, oh, you can't buy yeah. me something. Here's something nice. Here's a hundred bucks. Like, damn yeah, i was like this rough. is brutal and he just is like Bleh. and and uh it's like oh i have to leave because i i gotta make it home to my family on christmas eve and i'm like oh my god like there is no right? sympathy for this girl and like we'll get into that a little bit later on because mm-hmm. how he essentially tries to gaslight her and he just, does like, gaslight her yeah he does gaslight her manipulation which we'll get into yeah. in, a, in a hot second because this is when yeah. like right the, when the suicide happens i feel like like there's a lot to talk about with mm-hmm. uh, like the script and just like like kind of it's it's building and then once the suicide happens there's like that's when it's like okay here's where like the conversation starts um but yeah yeah treating the overdose like we mentioned yeah again do not do that if you find someone overdose call 911 and get yes. someone someone who is medical profe- professional to help right. you out and to be like 911 he, he will does, talk he, you through what to do like they I mean, will, he, he does get his his uh his doctor <laughs> his jewish doctor mm-hmm. to help him out but uh who is who's been chastising him for uh being a womanizer even though he's not getting any of that action right but um, cuz he thinks he is and that and that was part of it when I, when I was doing the reading thing on the zoom thing that I just got such a kick out of I was like I mean they do play that off as a laugh that this doctor is like man this guy is just busy you know like he and it's almost like but that's the, the other part of the toxic masculinity too that's the subversive part of it it's like that guy's just as you know uh, compulsed into this as the rest of them because he doesn't say anything mm-hmm. right until he's absolutely has to and it's part of that whole live and let live world you know that that we don't live in anymore okay because we live in the age of social media and that's you're not allowed to live and let live and for good reason in some ways i'm not gonna bemoan that entirely but that's that's where that comes from so it's not entirely the doctor's fault per se but it is just why he does what he does and he is played off as a, as a pretty horrendous stereotype but he's played for laughs and it, it is funny to watch him sort of schmicked around all of this other stuff <laughs> you know yeah. And and then, you know, as uh, Fran is recuperating uh, in his in his apartment, you know, we get some of these the, like the really interesting conversations. I mean, they're they're forming bonds with one another like or their bond is strengthening, I should say, um, which is interesting. I mean, Bud, he before this, too, like she st- she stands him up for a date. You know, he gets the uh, the tickets for uh, Music Man from his boss, asks Fran out. Then she goes to like the Chinese restaurant and stands him up and he uh, he kind of. He, I, I guess he just kind of blows it off, and like, it, I mean, it, he's hurt by it, but he's not. You know, I, I would have been, a, I would have been a little bit more up, uh, forthright about it if that were me. If I got stood up for the Music Man, mm-hmm. um, or just yeah, any any date in general, but, yeah, that'd, um, been, that'd have been rough. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know yeah. Really did that well to that, but yeah. So. <laughs> I mean, but I guess that's the whole character because where he ends up at the end. But um, mm-hmm. but here, yeah, this is when we get that conversation about you know. Baxter talking about killing himself mm-hmm. and how he's like, you know, I just went to the park and, and he's, he's just like casually talking about, yeah, I was going to shoot myself in the head. And then I, and then I, and then I accidentally shot myself in the knee and, yeah. and, and like, I'm laughing because I think that was, I mean, it, it, I mean, I guess as a dark comedy, that is pretty funny, but I'm also just like laughing and like, wow, I can't believe they're, they're just, joking about you know failed suicide attempts here which i guess broken people will uh 
laugh about you know the the unfortunate circumstances of their lot of their lives um but I mean, it was it, it was an interesting <laughs> yeah that yeah that was a joke it's like oh you know mm-hmm. i would have uh you know shot myself in the head i didn't know how to do it you know if you do it to your temple do you put it in your mouth and i just tasted like uh metal and i was like oh my god like this is this is like fucked up but also like kind of funny at the same time like well but that's that's the point is it's trying to be it's trying to be funny and and tell that story right and and not not take itself too seriously but at the same light go like look at what this does to everyone involved look at the damage this is doing to people it's not only to the woman that is being taken advantage of here but also you're watching this young man who's he's just trying to protect his career and move up the ladder right like that's the that's the thing he's just trying to you know just trying to stay out of the way and just be a good company man and he's compromising his morals to the point that he's like man what's the point of living and that's really what he comes to at the end is he's like i'll just be a poor moral person but at least i'll have morals you know when he says i'll just be a minch that's fine you know i don't care because he doesn't want to be caught up in all the corruption that he feels like is there and the thing that's not said in this and that i think is neat is that Sheldrake and all these executives, particularly Sheldrake, keeps going back to his family, right? No matter what he says. What you realize is that he's so caught up in his own lies that he can't even admit what he really wants. He doesn't want the family, but it's expected of him to have it, right? It's because he's an executive. So he's expected to have this family, expected to do this. But as part of that, that's why he's allowed to be this, you know, uh, awful uh, person, really. And I mean, there's commentary in that too, Mike, is that this guy's also caught up in his own traps and he can't admit it either. Everybody in this movie is as broken as that damn mirror. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and, and then, you know, like continuing that whole, I guess, apartment sequence of Fran recovering, um, they, I guess, uh, Carl, the brother-in-law is out looking for because Fran, um, she, she was gonna. She lives with her sister, or she always talks to her sister. And the sister's now worried, and and uh, Bud is saying, "Oh, you know, we can't let this get out that this happened. Like, just don't say you're with a guy." And then it's Carl's bosses who let him, who he lets use the apart apartment, rat him out. And Carl shows up for this altercation while they're making, uh, I guess, what was it, pasta with <laughs> with a tennis racket to strain this drain the pasta. And uh, mm-hmm. and after she. After she leaves, um, it's it's just interesting seeing how like how Bud reacts to all of this and how he when he uh, goes back to work and just uh, this is when you start seeing the more assertive side come back out in him. And also this is when uh, the executive Sheldrake, this is when, you know, more of his drama starts to come out of the closet with the secretary, um, you know, starting to write a letter. She calls his wife and says hey you you free for lunch because sheldrake fired her for telling fran about um like all the affairs that sheldrake has been having Mm -hmm. yeah no i mean and that that's what's funny is when he gets called out on it and how he just backpedals out of all of it right and and that's I think that's what Wilder and and his writer are trying to talk about here, right? Um, and how it 
how no matter what, and we should say too, that they made a musical out of this, that Neil Simon sort of turned it as, as a musical into something called Promises, Promises, which is a little, it's a little different. It takes some of the same turns, but it plays off a little differently. I think they, they downplay some of the more serious stuff in that for the more campy stuff. But I love that title of it is that promises, promises. You just keep saying the same thing over again, but it's really, it's lies, lies, lies. And, and, but nobody's going to call them out on it. Right. Because there's nobody to hold them accountable. And so what, what the message is, at least the way I take it is that there is no great authority that is going to, and this is actually, I don't believe this personally, but this is the, the, message of this you know film is that there's no other great authority that's going to hold any of these people accountable so we have to do it ourselves right you know which you know i don't believe that necessarily and i'm sure a lot of other people don't as well but that's what this is trying to say and in some ways like i get why that would be the the central like lesson to be learned from all this but it's also kind of sad because well, you're putting a lot of trust in a lot of very flawed individuals to ultimately do the right thing because not everybody is as as uh i guess uh altruistic as old baxter here let's let's be honest mike like if this was made nowadays like vince gilligan making this it would be very dark baxter would would just quit and walk away and fran would just still keep having the the affairs until she does kill herself you know or something like it would be it would be much darker if we did it today yeah she'd stay with the gaslighting emotionally manipulative boss who like i did write like it says let's just forget the whole thing i ought to be angry with you for trying this it's like god damn like let's just brush <laughs> let's just brush over the suicide it's almost i almost get the impression that he's just like man this would have been a lot easier if you just died um well, she, she, she punches him for it too and yeah, then but good, then, as she but, should but but then he ultimately steps in the way of another guy that's trying to get at her because you know she's rebuffing him or whatever and he's he takes the the hit for her and that's when she really wins over to him like wow he actually does care about me and he, he has that funny line with his doctor like didn't hurt a bit you know it would he's like absolutely pummeled at that point which you know that's that's how it's supposed to feel like oh yeah i would just get beat up for this woman that i love you know yeah, and it's just, and it's even in, more interesting too that the bosses are just—they have the balls to go up to Baxter and be like, you know, you're not grateful, and we're, and they start threatening him, like we can take this what? all away. And I'm like, I mean, he's got all the dirt in the world, like, and it's just interesting, just how, yeah, I mean, in this toxic masculinity world, like, driven world where they don't even think that that dirt matters, or like, oh, we, like, like, they don't even comprehend that they that they would lose in this, but, um. But yeah, as as um as Baxter, you know, kind of he he uh he develops uh into the person that we want him to be. Just you know, he stands. He finally puts his foot down and says, "Now nah, I'm done. Like this is this is wrong. I'm not doing this." And he and he leaves. And mm -hmm. uh, you know that later that night, you know, five days later at the New Year's Eve's party with uh, Shell Drake and Fran, uh, they have that conversation about you know like uh, I'm. My wife found out I'm leave like she well she kicked me out or I forget how he phrases it, but um once he tells Fran that uh that Bud quits, uh she you know just runs to him in, in classic almost like tropey fashion and then we run up to the door and then we hear what we think is a gunshot and even I was like oh my god are we like how you said are we gonna end on him shooting himself and like is this gonna be like a Hitchcock where she opens the door and it just fades to black but no like five seconds later he's just popping champagne and i was like okay thank god we didn't end on that note because i didn't know where this was gonna go um yeah. 
Yeah, I, I remember the, the joke. That, that was in. It was in the. I remembered that joke from the script, obviously, and I think they even keep that in the musical as well. Um, is is that she thinks, oh no, you know, but he's just he's just celebrating, and then it ends on the same lines where he like tells her how much she loves, you know, he loves her, and she's like, shut up and just deal the cards because they're constantly playing gin rummy in this, and it's, he, she's like, I, let's just let's just take it easy. You know, so slow down a little bit. And I appreciate that Fran kind of gets enough agency to be able to say that at the end of this movie, right? Because she really hasn't had any the whole movie. And, and the fact that she takes some finally at the end is, you know, it's heartwarming to see. And it's it's cute. Again, this movie is super cute. It's fun. You can watch it and just laugh and let it gloss over you. Or you can put the critical eye on like we've done and it'll ruin it for you. But, or, you know, it'll ruin all the fun in it. But you get to see something that's very much a a reflection of this is going on in our world today. And I'm talking about like what Billy Wilder would have been saying in the late 1950s and the sixties and the early sixties, this is going on in our world today. And this is not how it ought to be, you know, and you know, we're, we're eight years or so from the big social revolution in America. And this is part of what helped change that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I will say like, I do like that final line of shut up and deal and it fades to the end. And, and it, it cause it's, it, it just feels appropriate for the two, like how they've been interacting. Uh, yeah, you, you said it gives her finally some agency, but they, but she says it affection, affectionately, and and you know, then they start playing Jim Rummy. We don't end on this big like smooch at the doorway. Like I mm-hmm. love you, I love you. Like this, the cliche, which I think just would have not worked it for yeah. who these characters were. I do like this more. Just shut up and deal. It's it's you know it's <laughs> it's it's. I don't know. That's just the kind of like the love that I like, you know, uh, you know, you're willing, you, you know, just say, you know, just say shut up to your partner, but you say it with a smile. Um, and mm-hmm. I love, and I, and I really do like that, like that kind of cute ending. I think it ends on the perfect, um, on the perfect note. So I guess now we can get into our closing thoughts and uh, final recommendations. Jay, would you like to go first since this is uh, your pick? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do think this is, is certainly worth your time. If for either side of this, you want to come down on, if you want to watch something again for the contemporary commentary that it has and the fact that it still resonates today, I think you can find a lot there. Or if you just want to watch a good, funny comedy with some classic comedic actors that you know as as older people, but you want to see them in their younger days, this is totally worth it. And this is the genesis of a lot of great rom-com tropes, but also a lot of the subversive parts of romantic comedies that I think we, we kind of overlook sometimes until you give them a second look. So yeah, definitely a strong look as far as like an out of 10 or something i would i would give this probably about a six and a half or a seven it's not the most perfect movie ever but it's it's totally watchable it flies by pretty quick and yeah i think i think it's good if it, if we were doing this on film strip i would give it like a like a medium large like a large it's it's, <laughs> it's yeah it's it's probably a large when it's all said and done because it's definitely a classic but um yeah worth your time for sure and uh, glad glad i finally got to to break the case off of it and then talk about it with somebody here. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I'd echo a lot of the sentiments that you have, I think from like a film uh, historian or film history perspective. Yeah. This is something that everyone has to watch um, whether or not I recommend the movie or not. Like this is something that I think everyone should watch just for its script. Uh, it, it's, it's not as, you know, strong as the, in the visual department. Uh, although, I mean, you know, there are some like key things, you know, specifically the mirror, like I was talking about and the, the symbolism and just, you know, of the mirror and, you know, little get ga- like little gag details, like that, like I said, the olives at the apartment, there's, there's stuff sprinkled through that, but that's not like, this isn't about, this is a movie about the visuals. This is a movie about the performances mm-hmm. and about the scripts. And uh, I think it's like a, just like a, a something like law, lo- not lost in time, but just as a, 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 like a little reflection of just what, you know, 
the 60s, 50, late 50s, early 60s were like. I think this is something that people should watch. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, it's not the most perfect movie, but it is a very entertaining movie. And I think uh, this gives rom-coms a good name as opposed mm-hmm. to the more contemporary rom-com, which uh, which I'm not the biggest fan of, but uh, but uh, I didn't view this as a. I mean, when I was watching, I was like, oh yeah, I didn't think this was a rom com, but I guess technically it is classified as one. But yeah, I would recommend this movie. Um, out of my letterbox review, which um, I do have, uh, I guess if I think it's under amateur all tours, if people want to follow that, just see what I'm watching. Uh, I gave it a three out of five stars, and yeah, I would mm-hmm. I would also echo the sentiment of a seven out of ten. Uh, if I was on uh, film strip, I would give this a medium popcorn. Um, I do recommend the movie. It is a it is a very decent recommendation. So I think everyone should uh, should check this out. So that uh, that concludes this episode, Jay. Uh, Jay, do you want to plug your shows? Um, any any podcasts doesn't have to be film related. Cause I know you got a, you got a few projects you're working on now. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much, Mike. Again, the the main one obviously is film strip podcast. Um, go to filmstrippodcast.com. You can find all the links to our show. You know, 300 plus episodes now. Ron, Lindsay, and I um, uh, review movies together of all shapes and sizes. We bring on guests like Mike and uh, and other folks that you've heard here on Amateur Tours and other places to uh, talk about different things with us as well. And we just have a good time with it. We've been going for, uh, gosh, over a decade at this point. So uh, check us out at filmstrippodcast.com. And if you're, hey, if you're into, uh, to football at all or sports or any of that kind of stuff. I do have a show called sports ball grinder. You just look for sports ball grinder in Google or Apple, uh, Spotify. You'll find us there. Uh, and it's basically just a three time a week show. I do a, uh, kind of a Tuesday. I call it, you know, quick takes show on the weekend that was of the games that have happened. I do a Thursday pick show. And then uh, Saturday I, I'll pop on and do something I call hot takes with hot cakes, which is just a real quick run through of headline stuff that I think is kind of fun. I try to keep those really short, uh, built a sports, podcast that doesn't have any of the usual fluff or bloat that you get from other ones so we try to keep them all about 30 minutes or under so uh, check us out at sports ball grinder but yeah appreciate the opportunity to continue walking through the decades with you here on amateur Art tours Oh, yeah, of course. And as always, guys, you can follow us on Twitter at AltoursPod. You can email us with any questions, comments, or concerns at the Podcast at gmail.com. And as always, we'll see you next time, guys. 